Well, my friends, last week we considered this baptism with the Holy Spirit, when God poured out His Spirit upon His people. And now Peter stands to speak, to address the crowd. We often refer to this as Peter's sermon. It's not technically a sermon. Uh, and yes, it, it, yet it's kind of a sermon, uh, certainly in the, in the sense that Peter is responding to something that the crowd has said. They've said these people have been drinking too much wine. That's why they're speaking in all these different languages, although that already is, is irrational, isn't it? A, people, a person doesn't speak in a, another language when they're drunk, right? When a person's drunk, they speak gibberish. But uh, here, here is a uh, person actually speaking actual, real foreign languages. So already that doesn't make any sense. But Peter also points out it's only nine in the morning, right? These people are not drinking wine this early in the morning. This is something else. And so then we come to, to Peter's sermon. I'm going to call it a sermon uh, because he focuses so much on Scripture. It's an explanation and an application of Scripture. And that's what I understand a sermon to be. Uh, just very simple. A, a sermon is an explanation and an application of some portion of the Word of God. An explanation and an application of the Word of God. And we're going to see that that is what Peter does here. In fact, this is very interesting to us as people who, who listen to preaching every week. You know, some people uh, look with us like we're just complete fools, right? Because we, we, we sit for 45 minutes twice on a Sunday and listen to some person drone on about, about Scripture. It seems so irrational, right, to, to secular people. Why would you do that? There's, it doesn't make you any money, right? It doesn't it just doesn't seem to make any sense. And maybe that thought even comes up in, in some of our own minds. Why do we spend so much time listening to Scripture? I mean, even in other Christian churches, right, they have services, but there might be a 15-minute sermon, right, like a little devotional of some kind, and then they spend more time greeting each other, they have meals together, they worship uh, and they sing, and they have elaborate uh, worship uh, and things like that. And I'm not saying anything against those things. But in a Reformed church, there's so much preaching that takes place. So much preaching. And so this is interesting to us as Reformed people because now we can look at what Peter preached and we can think about preaching. We can think about what are the elements of a sermon. Because remember that this isn't just Peter preaching, right? Unlike any sermon I've ever brought, right? Peter's preaching is being overseen by the Spirit of God himself, right? Because this is inspired scripture. And so what we have here is Peter preaching but an inspired and therefore an infallible account of what Peter said. Now, certainly Luke, the author of this, does not have everything that Peter said, right? Luke gives us a summary of what Peter says. Luke doesn't record word for word the entire sermon. But Luke gives us a, a very accurate uh, summary of Peter's words in this instance. And like I said, this is very interesting to us now because we can, we can think about preaching from a biblical standpoint. This is an actual biblical sermon. So we're happy to have this. Now, we pointed out last week uh, that one element of a good sermon is that it centers around a single point, right? A sermon should cohere, should develop a, a single point, right? Our, our minds need focus, right? Or we can't understand very well. So Peter's sermon does that as well. And we found that focus, that single point in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2 and verse 36, Therefore, right, here's Peter's conclusion. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, 
whom you crucified. So there's Peter's central point. The whole sermon then is a development, a defense of that particular point. Now let's look then at these scriptures that Peter quotes. Obviously, scripture is going to be at the center of every sermon. So the first uh, scripture that Peter references here is from the prophet Joel. You can see he begins that in verse 16. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Now we can be quite brief here because it's very clear why Peter is quoting Joel. He's quoting Joel because Joel prophesied that Jesus, God working through Jesus, was going to pour out his spirit upon his people. Joel prophesied that way back in the Old Testament. And so Peter is saying, no, these people aren't drunk. They're not, they haven't drunk too much wine. On the contrary, what you see happening here, people, is exactly what Joel prophesied back in his day. Because Joel said that God said in verse 17, it shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons, your daughters, your young men, your old men, slaves, men, women, and so forth, will receive the gift of the spirit of God. So that's very, very clear. Now, one point that I want to make in here, uh, because uh, this can be a little confusing, and that is the term, on all mankind. Uh, my friends, you know, when the, when the Bible uses the word all and all men, it rarely means all men head for head that have ever lived on the face of the earth. Whenever we interpret the scripture, we always have to interpret it uh, in, in, in keeping with the kind of literature that it is. And we must remember that the scripture is not a technical, scientific, precise treatise, right? This is a person speaking and using the, the literary conventions of the day, right? Using the, the way people spoke back then to communicate a message to real people, right? This is not some uh, 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 college lecture, right? Where we expect strict precision. And so when he says all mankind, he doesn't mean all uh, mankind, all people that have ever lived on the face of the earth, he obviously can't mean that, right? Because God did not pour his spirit out upon all mankind head for head. God poured out his spirit on all kinds of people. And we're given those people in verse 9, right? This is what we considered last week. The Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, and so forth, right? These are the people. So when we, when we read all mankind, I know when we initially read that, we, we tend to think, well, that must mean everybody, right? But here, very clearly, it means all kinds of people because it's obviously to be restricted to those who are believers. It's restricted to those who call on the name of the Lord, as it says in verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I just want to clarify that. When we read... I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. It means all kinds of people, of all, uh, uh, all kinds of actually Jewish people at this point, no matter where they may come from on the face of the earth. So let's make sure we, we are, are clear on that point. But clearly Peter is quoting Joel to show the onlookers, the audience, that what is happening here is what God prophesied. And as we said in previous sermons, this is the inauguration of God's new covenant. The old covenant that God made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai is slipping away. It is becoming obsolete, as the author of Hebrews calls it. And the new covenant of grace 
is coming in with the pouring out of the Spirit. Well, let's move then to the next scripture because this one is much more complicated. Psalm 16. Why does Peter quote Psalm 16? We begin this in verse 25, where Peter says, For David says of him, that is of Jesus. Now the reason why uh, Peter quotes from Psalm 16 here is because he had previously said that you nailed him, this is in verse 23, you, that is you Jewish people, nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, that is the Romans, and put him to death. But God raised him up. Again, putting an end to the agony of death. God raised Jesus up. Now, my friends, we'll find this often in the book of Acts, that at the point of contention, it's, it's like, it seems like people can listen to the preaching of the apostles all the way up until the point when they mention the resurrection. It's always the resurrection that is like the dividing point. As soon as the apostles preach the resurrection, people can't take that. Jewish people don't like it. Gentile people don't like it. And some people scoff and mock at it because it seems so foolish to them. Other people simply can't believe it. But whatever the reason may be, and we'll, we'll get to that when we get to the other sermons in the book of Acts, the, book of res or the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus is always a dividing point. It's a continental divide, as it were. And people just can't, can't stomach it. And it's the same thing here in the book of Acts. Now, what Peter is now going to do is he's going to prove that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, if he's speaking to a Jewish audience, which he is, how is he going to do that? What would be the most effective way to prove that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, to quote scripture, of course, because Peter and his audience share that conviction that the word of God in the Old Testament is the word of God and is therefore infallible. So Peter is going to quote scripture to prove that, that the resurrection was something that God himself had prophesied through the Old Testament saints. And so he's going to quote David in Psalm 16. He could have chosen other verses, but this is the verse that he chooses to, to, uh, to bring to bear. Now, I see five things. And here, I, I, again, I want to kind of take you on Peter's uh, train of logic here. That he could, because Peter proceeds very logically in this, uh, in this uh, section. From one argument, from one point, one proposition to another. And I see five of them here. So let me give them to you one at a time here. The first one is that David says that God will not leave my soul in Hades, or Hades in Greek, or the grave. In other words, the place of the dead. You can see that. He begins that in verse 25. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. What hope? Verse 27, because you will not abandon my soul to the place of the dead, to Hades. In other words, yes, I'm going to go into the grave. I'm going to go into the place of the dead, but you're not going to leave me there. I have that hope. My flesh will rest in hope. You're not going to leave me in the place of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay, physical decay of the body. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So here is uh, the psalmist, at least, or uh, David speaking in the psalm, that God's not going to leave him in the grave. That's the first point. God will not leave his soul in the grave. 
Now we come to the second point. And again, Peter is going to proceed logically here. The second point is given us by Peter in verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David died, he was buried, he was put into the grave, and his grave is still with us. In fact, at the time when Peter is saying this, David's grave was a marked location. Just like I could take you to the grave of my grandparents right now in the Everest Cemetery right there on on uh, Burdick. It's an actual location. And Peter says, I could take you to the grave of David. We know where he's buried. And his body is still in there. And the obvious conclusion then is so that David, when he wrote this psalm, could not have been talking about himself. Because David's flesh is still in the grave. It is undergoing decay. And there is no hope uh, in terms that David's body is going to resurrect. Now you might say, well, won't David's body? Yes, it will resurrect one day. And how much David knew of that again in the Old Testament is unclear, right? But what David is saying, or what Peter is arguing here, is that David's body is still in the grave. And so David here is not talking about himself. Now, the third point, the third step in Peter's argument here, is that God had given David a promise that his dynasty would never end. In other words, there would always be a son of David on David's throne. You see that in verse 30. And so, because he was a prophet, that is, David was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Again, you can find that language in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever and ever. And in the Jewish mind, that is the Messiah. So basically, that basically what Peter is saying here, and God had promised David that a Messiah was going to come, that he was going to be a son of David, that he was going to sit on his throne. That's argument number three in that list. And now I come to verse or to the fourth argument here, to the fourth argument, and in verse thirty-one, Peter continues. He looked ahead. That is, David looked ahead, because again he was a prophet and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, or of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, or to the place of the dead, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So now Peter is saying it wasn't David. David wasn't prophesying about himself. He was prophesying about the Messiah, who God had promised to him, that he would sit on his throne forever and ever. The Messiah was the one who was going to die, yes, but he was going to come out of the grave. He was going to be raised from the dead, and brought back to life again. So David is referring in Psalm 16, not to himself, but to the Messiah. And then the clincher, the fifth argument, verse 36, I'm sorry, verse uh, 32, verse 32, this Jesus, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we all are witnesses. So God had promised a Messiah to David, David had prophesied in Psalm 16 that the Messiah was going to rise again from the grave. He was going to rise again from the dead. And who do we know that rose from the dead? Jesus. In fact, Peter says, you all witnessed it. You are, I, no, I can't say that to you, can I? We did not witness the resurrection of Christ. We take that on faith, having read it in the infallible word of God. But Peter's audience had seen Jesus die, 
maybe not all of them, but many of them had seen Jesus die on the cross. They knew he was buried, and they had seen him alive after he resurrected from the dead. Now do you see the circle of Peter's argument? That David's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah was going to die. He was going to rise again. Now who is that Messiah? Is he one that we're still to look for? Is he still coming? Or has he already come? And Peter says he certainly has already come because it's Jesus. And we have proof, eyewitness proof, that he was in the grave, but he came back to life again. So that is, that is Peter's argument there, and that's why he uses Psalm 16. And verse 36 then contains the grand conclusion, right? As we already said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ. When a, when a person confessed that Jesus had risen from the dead, that was the equivalent of saying Jesus is Lord. Or Jesus is Christ, the Messiah. Because the Messiah was going to rise from the dead. When you find a person that has risen from the dead, you found the Messiah. And Peter says, Jesus has risen from the dead, and therefore he's the Messiah. And he is Lord. And if he's Lord, then you need to bow the knee to him. Because he is Lord and King and Master. And what he says is truth. And he has all authority in heaven and in earth. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Well, my friends, the, 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 I mean, that logic can't be shaken, right? I mean, when you've seen Jesus with your own eyes die, and then you see him alive again, the, the truth of what Peter is saying can't be, you can't dodge it, right? I mean, it's just too obvious. Jesus is Lord. And when that feeling sinks in to the people, there is distress. There is deep mental distress and agony. And then Peter calls out, this is the call. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And now comes the call. Peter says, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 39, for the promise. My friends, Peter sends out a call. He, he, they, they ask him what they should do. Peter gives them what they should do. And at the basis of that is this glorious gospel promise that God makes to these people. For the promise, you should repent and you should be baptized. Why? Because there is a promise. There is a promise. And in the preaching of Peter, and in all preaching, there is contained this promise. Right? And it's a promise that is made to a certain kind of people. A certain kind of people. And that is people who are repentant and who submit to baptism. They receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, my friends, this is, this is, a, this is an incredible truth, what we have here. In verse 39, in the, in the Greek, there's a very interesting construction, which is lost in the English, but I can, I can bring it to you. In the Greek language, when you want to emphasize something, you put it at the front, you put it at the beginning of the sentence. 
So that in the Greek language, as Peter preached this, he would have said this. Verse 39, for you the promise is. In other words, right at the beginning of that sentence, he puts, for you the promise is, and your children, and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now think about that with me for a minute, dear friends. For you, who is the you here? Who is the you? When you look out at Peter's audience, Peter no doubt sees people in that audience. And in the audience are people who themselves reflect on the fact that they were the ones who insulted Jesus at the cross. Perhaps there were those who said, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. My friends, put yourselves in the shoes of those people. When they begin to reflect on the fact that Jesus is Lord, according to Peter's preaching, and yet I was one who said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Dear congregation, perhaps there were those in Peter's audience who said, let his blood be upon us and our children. Think about that this morning. That there may very well have been those people listening to Peter who cried out at Jesus' trial and crucifixion, let his blood pee upon us and our children. And now Peter comes with the preaching of the gospel, and he says, for you, for you, there is a promise. These people are cut to the heart. They are convicted of their sin in such a, in such a dramatic, powerful, sudden way. The, the logic of Peter's preaching, applied, of course, by the Spirit of God to their heart, has left them broken and crushed in a sense of their own guilt. And Peter now says to them, for you, there is a promise. And that promise is that if you will repent of your sins and take refuge in Jesus Christ, you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I don't want us to skip over that this morning, my friends. I want you to rest. I want you to park on that point, especially when we think about the Lord's Supper as it approaches in the coming week. For you. Don't forget that Peter heard those words first from the mouth of Jesus, who said, this is my body, broken for you. My friends, isn't it true this morning that the whole gospel is wrapped up in those words, for you? That when we understand that in a gospel way, when we think about who Peter addresses those words to, the whole gospel is carried in those, just those two words. I, I should have made that the title of the sermon. For you. For you, there is a gospel. There is good news. There is a promise. That's a powerful thing, my friends. Let's move then to the points of application that I want to make uh, this, this morning. I've already touched on this first point that it's the resurrection that is the point of offense that people take at the gospel. 
And the reason that is, my friends, is because when we confess that Jesus rose from the dead, we are confessing that Jesus is Lord. Those are equivalent expressions. To say that Jesus rose from the dead is the equivalent of saying that Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. In fact, Paul says something very similar in Romans 10. In Romans 10, Paul says, he says, uh, uh, the preaching which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, or Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You see how those two are inextricably linked. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you will also confess with your lips. You are, in a sense, confessing with your lips that Jesus is Lord. And that, of course, is the point at which unregenerate people rebel. I will not have this man to rule over me. I will not submit my life to another master. I want to be my own master. I want to rule my own life. I want to walk my own path. I want to write my own story. But the gospel comes and says, no, Jesus is Lord. And furthermore, the gospel says with, with, with a dreadful power that people will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, either in this life or before his great white throne on that last day. Jesus is Lord. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain. And today, Christ preaches here, therefore, let all the members of Covenant United Reformed Church know that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then Jesus is Lord. I come now to my second point, conviction. My friends, what a precious thing conviction is. You know, there's a religion today that has successfully eliminated all sense of conviction from it. This religion is alive and well in Reformed churches, in Reformed schools, in Reformed colleges, in many, many Christian circles. There is this religion, right, that preaches us that, yes, we are hurting, but God loves all of us. He's working hard to take care of us. And every day, God is trying and doing and working. And he loves us. And he cares deeply about us. And yes, there's a place for that, isn't there? There's certainly a truth there that we love and that we cherish. But my friends, when that message is divorced from this message... That God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And when we have a religion that has a God who, is, who, who loves us and cares for us, and who dries our tears for us, but we never have this side of the gospel, my friends, whom you crucified, that your sins nailed the Savior to the cross, and that you are guilty for that act. And that we don't blame the Romans for that. We don't blame the Jews for that. No, that is a sin that lies on my record. And when there never was a time in our life, my friends, and maybe I should say it this way, when there wasn't a time this morning already that we were not pierced to the heart because of our sin and because of our guilt, my friends, that is a worthless religion. 
run from that kind of religion. Because ultimately, that's not a biblically-based religion, my friends. Biblically, my friends, and what Peter teaches us is that there is sin and grace. There is guilt and grace. Sin and forgiveness. There is death in Adam and life in Christ. And how clearly we see that portrayed before us in this sermon today. And I would ask you, my friends, in, in, in your own uh, reading, in your own, uh, in, your own, in your own religious practices in your home, and, and the, the way you raise your children, the way your children are educated, right, in schools and in colleges, right, that we need to take care that this is not the religion that we profess, but that we profess a religion that teaches us both sin and grace, that we have lost our life in Adam, that we've lost all right to God's grace and mercy. And that's why we can only have God's grace. What does God's grace mean, my friends? It's unmerited favor. But why would we need grace if there's no conviction, as we see here in our passage this morning? And so I press this upon you, my friends, that any kind of self-esteem gospel that would teach us to feel good about ourselves, that would leave you thinking that God loves you no matter what you might do in your life, That's a false gospel. It's certainly not the gospel that we find here in Acts 2. Let me ask you this morning, my friends, when was the last time that you were pierced to the heart? When was the last time that I was pierced to the heart with my sense of guilt and what I've done against God? You know what that does? That makes for a humble Christian. That's not the person then that stands on his rights and insists on his way in the church. That's a person that takes his place in the corner of the church with the publican, beating upon his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That, my friends, is biblical religion. That is true Christianity. I remember my father telling me a story. I can hardly believe this, but I, I, I'm told it happened. I met a woman in Grand Rapids, Mrs. Mintoff. And she told me that her, 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 her father, or maybe it was her grandfather, I can't remember exactly, but her father was in church, and when Pastor Reverend Minderman, he was preaching, and he came under such conviction that he cried out in the very church, I'm lost, I'm lost, I'm lost. Now, my friends, I'm not saying that that's an experience we need to have. But what a difference in the kind of preaching that Peter has here, when we see Peter with people being pierced to their heart, and when we see Mr. Van Hoff crying out, I'm lost under the preaching, and the kind of preaching that we hear today, which only teaches us to feel good about ourselves and that God is on our side and that he's there for you. Well, I spent longer on that than I intended, my friends, but I feel strongly how necessary that is, that our preaching that we lay our preaching, that we favor and that we cherish next to the sermon of Peter here and judge it by what the scripture would teach us. I come then to my third point of application here, the promise. In the gospel, my friends, there is a promise. Here the promise is, as Peter articulates, the promise of receiving the Holy Spirit. And again, it's not about the Holy Spirit so much, but receiving the Holy Spirit leads us to Christ. And in that gospel preaching, my friends, is this gospel promise that to all those who will repent and take refuge in Christ, there is a full forgiveness of all their sin. 
Oh, my friends, what a message that must have been for those people on that Pentecostal morning. When they sat there and when the truth began to dawn on them that they had driven nails into the sa- to their own Savior's hands and feet, that their sins had crucified the Savior. And now Peter says, for you, for you, there is this gospel promise. Repent and be saved. Repent and be forgiven. Everyone, Peter quoted from Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, my friends, when does that promise become very meaningful to us? That promise becomes meaningful to us when we see the door of heaven shut tightly against us because of our sin. And that's why these two points of conviction and promise are like two strands of a a rope. They go together. They never can be separated. The promise in the gospel, my friends, remains something completely unappealing and invaluable to us. Until the Spirit of God sets home upon our own conscience that we crucified the Lord of glory. Then the promise becomes infinitely valuable. We can never be without it. Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And and the last point then, my friends, this call, repent, repent. Because there's that promise, yes, you've been convicted. Here is this promise, and now the call, repent. And wrapped up in that language of repentance, my friends, is certainly the idea of faith. Repentance and faith here are certainly bound up together. Repentance being a broad term that would include faith. Probably Peter uses the word repent here because he's speaking to people who probably really were participants in the crucifixion of Christ. They literally were part of that crowd who called for his crucifixion. And Peter therefore calls them to repent. And it's implied here that there is also faith. And no one is excluded. No matter what sin they may have have committed, no matter if they literally drove the nails, which they hadn't, but even if they had, no one is excluded. No one has sinned too far. The promise is for you. And Peter now calls them to cast themselves upon it. And that teaches us as well, my friends, that in the gospel and in gospel preaching, there is that call to take hold of that promise. Apart from that promise, you are lost eternally. Now, my friends, I have to take you back to another person. Another person in Acts chapter 1 who also heard this promise and this call. We read about him in Acts 1 and verse 18. Acts 1 and verse 18. Here we read about Judas. It starts in verse 16, actually, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. My friends, Judas also had a measure of remorse and regret about the sin he had committed. Because if anybody, if anybody was guilty of crucifying Jesus, literally, Judas was the man. He also came back to the priest and threw the silver down at their feet and said, I have betrayed innocent blood. But my friends, the horror of the story of Judas is that he never understood this promise of the gospel. He never brought his guilt to the feet of Jesus. The Spirit of God never brought him to that place 
where he recognized Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And therefore Judas came to a place of such despair that he ended his own life. And the gruesome details are given us here in the book of Acts. This, my friends, is the nightmare of every preacher, the nightmare of every parent, that there would be someone in our midst who would understand his sin and even regret it, and yet never come to the Savior, and yet never come to that promise where they would take hold of Jesus Christ. I want you to see this morning, my friends, that picture of Judas. It's the picture of a man who came so close. It's the picture of a man who even had a measure of repentance, but never one grain of true faith in the Savior. Never that time when he cast himself upon the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy. But his inner anguish and inner torture was so much and so great that he finally went and hung himself. There was that moment, congregation, when Judas appeared before the judgment seat of Christ in heaven. And I imagine in my mind, my friends, that Jesus would say to Judas, Judas, what are you doing here? Judas, why do you come unsummoned into my presence, having taken your own life? And Judas, having heard from my own hands the gospel promise, you, Judas, you of all people heard it from my own mouth, that I came to give my life a ransom for many. And now, Judas, you stand here in front of me. And I have to say to you, Judas, depart from me into hell's fire forever and forever, into a place where hope never comes. My friends, the Holy Spirit gives us this gruesome picture of Judas as a standing visible symbol to us of what happens when a person is even convicted of their sin, but never comes to Jesus, never takes hold of the cross of Christ. And so I can't skip over that place this morning, my friends. But when these people are pierced in their heart, and Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, he certainly means turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Let's turn to a happier picture. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 41, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added 3,000 souls. 3,000 people, my friends, that came to Christ and that heard the blessed word of the Savior, that if you confess your sins, I will surely forgive your sins and cleanse you from all iniquity. 3,000 people, my friends, who went to their homes as forgiven people. 3,000 people who could say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 3,000 people. Yes, we have one example of Judah lying disemboweled in a gorge as he hung himself. But we have a picture also of 3,000 people, my friends, who found life in the Savior, life in Christ, full forgiveness of all their sins. I pray, my friends, that when God comes again on the clouds of heaven, he'll find us in that 3,000 who found salvation 
in the blood of Christ. May God bless it. Let us pray. Lord, we are astounded to hear news this morning that for us, who crucified the Lord of glory, who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, there is also a promise made to us. Repent, believe, be saved. That there is a promise that whosoever thirsts, let him come and drink. Let him find his life, her life in Christ, and they shall be saved. Lord, we read also this day this dreadful picture of Judas, who also felt the pain and the guilt of his sins, probably felt it in great anguish, and yet came to such a wretched place. Lord, I pray that you would remember each one gathered here, and that not one would ever come to that dreadful place, where they have to stand before the Savior who loved them enough on earth to give them this gospel promise, and who gave it in all sincerity, and yet they turned from it. They rejected it. They went their own way. And so they lost salvation, which they could have had. Lord, we earnestly beseech you then this morning that you would pour out your spirit upon us so that we would come to recognize, to own, and to rejoice in the fact that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And we find all our life and salvation in him. Lord, please bless us then and keep us. Remember us also as we return this evening. Visit us, Lord. Speak to us. Call us. And give us new repentance, fresh repentance. Whether we've been Christians for many years or whether we've never been a Christian before, Lord, bring us to that place of repentance, that happy place where we are joined to Jesus Christ by faith. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> My friends, before we sing, you'll know that this is a week of preparation. So we will read now the form for the Lord's Supper, as it's given to us, in the Forms and Prayer book, which you'll find before you in, your, in the pew. And we'll read the first section of this, of the form here. You'll find that on page 37 in the Forms and Prayer book, Celebration of the Lord's Supper, Form 1. There we read, page 37 in the Forms and Prayer book. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort. It is necessary to examine ourselves fully and further to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of three, of three parts. First, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God. 
considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that he, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in his beloved son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine their heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God, that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own. Indeed, so completely, as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before his face, and whether they with full sincerity strive to lay aside all enmity, hatred, and envy, and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. All those, then, who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. According to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature, those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition, all those who despise God, his word, and his holy sacraments, all blasphemers, those who seek to cause discord, factions, and dissension in the church or in the state, all perjurers, all who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives. All those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper, so that they feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts, as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. We do not come to this supper to testify about our own, our own perfection and righteousness. But on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lusts of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. We'll take that up again next week. <clears throat> Let's turn then in the blue hymnal and sing to God's praise number 300. And ninety nine, three hundred and ninety nine, where we hope to sing, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Let's sing verses one, two, and three of three ninety nine in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.